Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm an avid mountaineer. And so to me, I always wanted to contribute to stopping climate change. It felt wrong to put CO2 in the atmosphere and not take it back. It's normal to us that if we're using water, we are treating the wastewater, but we don't really have a waste management system for the atmosphere. As an engineer, noticing that there's no technical and no feasible solution out there for a treatment facility of our atmosphere, it was clear to me that something has to be done. We discovered by serendipity the opportunity to take CO2 out of the air and store it in the ground. Direct air capture is suddenly becoming a billion-dollar industry. We are essentially going from a very young industry with a limited number of players and experience to the playground. This is what we have to figure out going forward. That's Christoph Giebald, co-founder and co-CEO of Climeworks, a Switzerland-based company that's become a leading player in carbon capture technology. Earlier this year, Climeworks became the first enterprise to be certified by a third party for taking carbon out of the air, storing it underground, and processing it into rock. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group, and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Christoph because direct air carbon capture has been the missing link in nearly all climate crisis solution plans. While not a silver bullet to our warming planet, carbon capture would fill a multi-gigaton gap to bring us closer to net zero. The question Christoph and his team face is how to scale the new technology, leveraging not just science, but investors, corporate partners, and governments. Christoph emphasizes the role of serendipity so far in Climeworks' breakthrough efforts, as well as the lessons learned through missteps and mistakes. From supplying fizz to Coca-Cola to a chance encounter with the former president of Iceland, Climeworks has found product market fit by pursuing a mountain climber's approach, not focusing too much on the top peak above, but following the path ahead, step by step. And in the process, they've given us a glimpse of what might be a better world for all. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news, that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, 
as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Bob Safian. I'm here with Christoph Giebald, co-founder and co-CEO of carbon capture firm Climeworks. Christoph is coming to us from Zurich as I ask my questions from New York. Christoph, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bob, for having me. So earlier this year, Climeworks announced that you'd received third-party certification for successfully taking carbon out of the air and putting it in the ground in a process that will turn it into rock. This is a dream for many climate watchers that this kind of technology could be successful. You've been at this for many years with your co-founder and co-CEO, Jan Wurzbacher. How significant was reaching this benchmark? We started actually to do this already 15 years ago to develop technology to pull carbon out of the air. And some five years ago, uh, started to put it in the ground. And initial efforts to do that have been solely based on the trust that existed in this field. So if you buy an electric car, <laughs> you can feel the performance of the car, right? If you have solar panels, you can power your computers or your lights at home. If you capture CO2 from the air with machines and pump it in the underground, you're not feeling anything. You can't see CO2, you can't smell CO2. And so far... Every action in this whole industry has been based on trust. We finally had a third party confirm and verify that the services we are doing are right and quantified in the way as we put it on our certificates. You attended the World Economic Forum in Davos this year, not long after reaching this milestone. What kind of reception did you get? At the World Economic Forum, I perceived a very genuine interest business leaders are gearing up and understanding solutions to achieve the targets that they have announced. And for us, being one pillar of the solution pool that is out there to achieve net zero by latest mid-century. Yeah, you, you say it's one pillar. For people watching this, direct air capture can sound like it's like a silver bullet for the climate crisis. First and foremost, we have to reduce CO2, like drive electric cars, insulate our houses, use renewable energy sources instead of fossil sources. However, there's only so much you can reduce. There is a remaining part of unavoidable emissions, around about 5 to 10%, and this has to be removed from the atmosphere. If we were to approach the full 100% with direct air capture, this would be simply uneconomical and, and unfeasible. We are the last resort for things you're not getting rid of otherwise, like agriculture, hard to abate emissions like flying, for example, or hard to decarbonize industries like steel making, aluminum making, etc. You started this journey in university. You started the company in 2009, but there have been a lot of critical voices over the years about whether this could even work, whether this was feasible at all. Why did you keep going? 
I'm an avid mountaineer. And the outdoors are a very sensitive environment, especially the mountains, the effects of climate change, like landscapes are changing. And so I always wanted to contribute to the topic of stopping climate change. To me, always, it felt wrong to put CO2 in the atmosphere and not take it back. It's normal to us that if we're using water and we are treating the wastewater, like if we have trash, we're not throwing it out of our windows in, in the streets and it's piling up. But we don't really have a waste management system for the atmosphere. As an engineer, noticing that there's no technical and no feasible solution out there for a treatment facility of our atmosphere, it was clear to me that something has to be done. I could have earned much more in the last 15 years elsewhere, but not earned more to my heart <laughs> and, and my passion than what I'm currently doing. You guys have scaled this technology to the point where you're able to remove thousands of tons of carbon, but we need to get to billions of tons to be climate relevant. Is reaching that goal applying what we know now at greater volume, or are there scientific hurdles that we still have to overcome? Or is it about cost? It's essentially about cost. Technology we have today and we are deploying today works, period. And we could scale that to gigatons. The question is, what is the ultimate cost entitlement of the technology that we're having today and will be achieved by scaling today's technology in the long run? We're working on heavy deployment of the current state of technology and we are continuing to work on technology development to progressively walk down the cost curve. How much energy does it take to remove carbon? Because you don't want to create as much as you're removing. Very simple answer, 10%. If we take a ton of CO2 out of the air with our machines, we're emitting 0.1 tons in the form of gray emissions from both energy and material use. If we are serving a ton of carbon removal to the market, like be it corporates or private people, or maybe in the long run, even governments, what that means is we're taking roughly 1.1 tons of carbon out of the air and provide 1.1 tons for permanent underground storage in order to have net removed a ton of CO2 from the atmosphere. I know that you opened your first commercial plant in 2021 in Iceland where there is lots of geothermal power available there. So you are using renewable energy to be able to do that. Exactly. We do focus on the application of sustainable energy sources to power direct air capture. Air capture, no matter how you do it, is an energy-intensive business. And you want to make sure that you're using renewable energy sources. Now, the world urgently needs to scale the deployment of renewable energy sources. However, there's a limit, like the classical example, maybe the wind is not blowing when you want to use your uh, dishwasher, right? It's becoming increasingly a challenge to balance the availability of renewables and the need in the grids. Direct air capture can be a catalyst to the deployment of renewable energy systems because we can take renewables at times when others cannot or promote the deployment of renewables in areas where you today don't have off-takers for renewable energy sources. Think about the sunbelt of the planet, right? If you install a large-scale direct air capture facility, you can promote 
the construction of a solar electricity park, and that can help to electrify parts of the world that are currently not being electrified. So in summary, yes, it requires energy, but it can also be a catalyst to much needed deployment of renewable energy sources. I love the way entrepreneurship can evolve by plan and also sometimes just by happenstance, by luck. I understand that Iceland became the destination for your first commercial plant, not just because there was geothermal power there, but because of a chance meeting in Marrakesh you had with the wife of Iceland's president. Can you share that story? I can confirm over the last 15 years, the really big breakthroughs were serendipity. It's probably a 90% serendipity and a 10% results of the rough planning. And the fact that we're operating in Iceland really goes back to lucky encounters, like being invited to a very special party at the COP in, in Marrakesh, where I happened to meet the wife of the former president of Iceland who introduced me to the former president of Iceland, Olafur Grimson, who I had the chance to talk to and tell him that we're capturing CO2 from the air with machines. And he said, oh, well, that's beautiful. This is something he has been looking for for many years because in his country, in Iceland, since two decades, researchers have found a way how CO2 can be stored very effectively and, and safely in the ground. And he helped to enable contacts. And actually, it went very fast from the first encounter at this party in Marrakesh to the first pilot being installed. It took less than 12 months, which was remarkable for our company at that state. I understand you're working with other carbon storage companies on some other projects in Norway, in Oman. Why is that? It's because of scaling. Our core competence is pulling carbon from the air in the most effective way. And the core competence of others is how CO2 can be stored in the safest and most durable way and lowest cost way in the underground. Underground storage depends heavily on the region you're working. For example, in Iceland, where we're actually doing underground mineralization, which means the CO2 is essentially turned into stone. Looking at in Norway, where it's more conventional underground storage, where the CO2 is locked up in the underground as a gas. In the United States, in Louisiana, we have a project going on, which is also more conventional storage. And those partners at those sites have to, of course, understand the local properties of the storage wells. And this is why it's distributed on several different shoulders. Does it matter if carbon is captured in Iceland versus in the United States? Like, is there a different impact based on where it's captured, on the local climate or, or anything? Or That's the beauty of air capture. It's independent of the location you're capturing the CO2. We can capture CO2 anywhere on the planet and through diffusion and jet streams and the wind phenomena, it's diluting over the atmosphere. So you've mentioned serendipity. You've mentioned scaling. I know that since you started Climeworks in 2009, you've tried a bunch of different business models. You tried selling captured carbon to Coca-Cola in an effort to close the carbon loop. You offer individuals an opportunity to pay for direct air carbon capture. Now you're focused more on corporate customers and this underground storage. The business model keeps shifting. Do you expect that to continue? Actually, our 
original first dream has been to sell plants, but no surprise, no one wanted to buy those plants because no company on earth had the business model to buy and operate direct air capture machines. We transitioned to, we pre-financed those facilities and we operated and sell CO2 molecules as a commodity. And that, again, transitioned to put the CO2 in the ground and lock it away safely. And we charge companies or people to pay us for the service of removing carbon from the air. The business model will clearly continue to change. What I do, however, see is that the product for carbon dioxide removal as a service for both people as well as corporates, and hopefully one day even governments, is a product to last. What will change is the details on how we go about it. There are other direct air capture efforts out there. How much do you look at what they're doing at other technologies? How much does the industry collaborate versus compete? I mean, there there aren't unlimited investment dollars, and yet in many ways, you're all on the same team because you're trying to develop this area. There are a handful of companies that existed pre-2010. On the other hand, we are seeing more and more new companies existing uh, only since one and a half or two years. Now, the market is large enough for a good two dozens of companies. Climate Science asks our industry to remove several gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere. Individual uh, company can achieve, if we are ambitious, say in the range of a gigaton. So if the target is five gigatons for direct air capture in 2050, and you have five super successful companies, like Unicorn Squared, it'll be five firms each contributing a gigaton. So plenty of space. In 20 to 30 years down the road, there will be an ecosystem of, I do think, 20 to 50 companies which are very, very successful, very profitable in this domain, capturing CO2 from the air. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just like share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible. And we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Before the break, we heard Climeworks co-founder and co-CEO Christoph Giebald talk about how direct air carbon capture can have a positive impact on the climate crisis. Now he talks about the rapid evolution of the carbon capture industry and how Climeworks' own path has been marked by unexpected pivots. He also shares lessons about following intuition, testing new ideas to find product market fit, 
and keeping your eye on what's directly in front of you, even if your dream goal is way up in the sky. There are different carbon capture that happens in industrial plants, which keeps emissions from ever reaching the atmosphere. Is that a related technology to what you're doing? It's two different tracks. The only thing what we have in common is the underlying science. The way you capture a CO2 molecule from a very chemistry point of view is similar for capturing CO2 from the air and from a combustion flue gas. All the rest is very different. In air, CO2 is heavily diluted. It's 0.04%. In a combustion flue gas, it's 10 to 20%. So the system implementation, the business models, the market applications, and the whole value chain is different. I ask these questions because the carbon capture industry can seem a little bit like a Wild West. You know, there are things happening at industrial plants. There are folks planting trees. You know, there's the work that you're doing. And as you say, there isn't sort of a recognized certification authority globally like this industry and this marketplace is still early. And there's a risk about a trust gap in all that, about what you're getting for what you're spending. Everything we do is actually going back to October 2018. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, released a report on the 1.5 degree target. And in this report, they made clear to achieve this target, you have to remove CO2 from the air in massive quantities, massive being gigatons. What that did to us and our whole industry was really a step change in perception. Like before October 2018, everything we did was mainly based on us educating. Now, since October 2018, suddenly we had a lot of wind in our sails and the boat was driving much faster. And it not only did it for us, but for this whole ecosystem. It's actually not too much time where you had to figure out a lot of pieces of the puzzle, right? To me, it totally makes sense that you declare it as Wild West. On the other hand, I'm seeing substantial acceleration since October 2018, which gives me a lot of confidence that we can move the needle in the right direction for the 2050 targets. In running this business, you started needing to know engineering. And then, as we talked about, some business model adjustments. Now you're adding people rapidly. You have different kinds of partnerships. How do you know if each next wave of skill sets is something you can handle? The good news is we're two founders. And this is simply too much for one brain. The way we have split it up at Climeworks is that Jan is working on the technology and operations front, and I'm working on the market, investor, and policy side. So we can actually have our brains fully contributed to those two challenges of scaling market and scaling tech at the same time. What we developed over time, actually a lot, is intuition for certain things and gut feel for how things should be and where they should go. In 2017, our main business was about selling CO2 as a commodity. And we were extremely proud of having the Coca-Cola company behind it. As a customer to the CO2, we're pulling out of the air to carbonate the drinks. And right at this time, we discovered, like by serendipity, the opportunity to take CO2 out of the air and store it in the ground. And you have the ability to reduce actively the CO2 content of the atmosphere. And we did a couple of scoping calls. We had a pilot plan with a 
minimal CO2 capture capacity. In half an afternoon, like by scoping five clients, the capacity of this plant was put on the market. And that felt that somehow confirmed, hey, there could be something in there. This can be really a nice product market fit. And fast forward five years, the world is waking up on the need of carbon removal. Large corporates are integrating carbon removal in their business model. That was one of those intuitions where you thought, hey, people and companies, I'm sure they will love this. And today we, we see the fruits and actually we do have finally after many years this very nice product market fit. It must be hard to make that pivot. I'm sure you work very hard to get a top-notch brand like Coca-Cola to be a customer and then to get to the point where you say, maybe that's not even the business we want to be in. Yeah, that's the thing with decisions. Decisions are mostly painful. <laughs> and mostly, the more painful they are, the more powerful they can be. This saying of Warren Buffett, I think, who once said, successful people say no nine out of ten times. And saying no hurts. It really hurts. Like saying no to opportunities hurts. And that's one of the biggest challenges in our field is with this essentially unlimited market and essentially unlimited applications you could have for pulling carbon from the air, there's also the risk that you're not focusing. One of the most tricky parts is to constantly turn down on opportunities all across the board, like to people who are applying to your company, to potential partners, to potential investors, also to potential policy. So this constant refocusing and recalibrating on what you're up to and then considering the bandwidth you have and what you can focus on. So Climeworks has reached a certain stage, a certain stage of growth, a certain stage of opportunity for you, for Climeworks, for Jan. What's at stake right now at this inflection point? Half of my brain is in the future <laughs> and the I always try to figure out how to unlock the next phase of growth. And for example, in the United States, we have this huge piece of government support. With the Department of Energy, there is $3.5 billion on the table to deploy direct air capture on a megaton scale. And on the other hand, we have the Inflation Reduction Act, which also has support for direct air capture. So the question that we're currently having is how can we leverage what we have accomplished to date in the best way to fulfill the requirements of this program and show really the large-scale implementation of air capture in the United States. This is only half part of the story. The other half has to be financed from the private market or from investors the direct air capture industry is suddenly becoming a billion-dollar industry where you're having projects being enabled on the billion-dollar scale, which is similar magnitude as other large-scale energy projects or renewable projects. So we are essentially going from like a very young industry with a limited number of players and experience to a playground that is reserved of very large energy companies. And figuring out how to convince investors uh, to fill the gap, that is at stake going forward. You sound excited by it, though. This is dream policy and dream deployment support that's happening there. I mentioned I'm an avid mountaineer. When I studied in the U.S. and end of my studies with two friends from college, I climbed Mount McKinley in, in Alaska. 
And it's a bit of like saying, hey, I'm really dreaming about climbing this mountain. And suddenly you have someone saying, okay, let's do it. Here's the gear you need. Here's your ticket to fly to Alaska. Here's the pair of ski you're going to use. Here's the plane to the glacier. It's a bit like that feeling, you know. You have been dreaming about that and suddenly you, you really have the opportunity to do it. I sometimes use a climbing analogy for entrepreneurship. You know, you work very hard to get to a, a pinnacle and you look over your shoulder and you pat yourself on the back that you've reached this place. And then you turn around and you realize you're only in the foothills and there's yet another mountain to climb. Is that the way it feels for you? If you're climbing Everest and if you're constantly looking to the peak, like you're frustrated all the time because it's so far away. But if you simply consider the next step you have to take, it can be a very beautiful journey. This is philosophy at Climbworks is the power of small steps. And this is something everyone can do. If you on the one hand have like a very big target like climbing Mount Everest, but on the other hand, you focus on the next step and make sure you're not being killed on the next step that you're taking and that you have the energy reserves to do it and, and the right team to do it, you'll be successful. If I recall summiting Denali, for example, in Alaska, I don't know, what was it, like a minute on the peak or two minutes on the peak? But it was a five-week journey and the time in base camp, the time in high camp. So if you do something like direct air capture, which is an extremely long journey, you have to acknowledge the beauty of the journey you're taking and not only think about the end game, else you, you're getting frustrated and demotivated. Well, Christoph, this has been great. Thank you so much for doing it and for talking with us. Thank you, Bob, for the invitation. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. It's hosted by me, Bob Safian, Masters of Scale's editor-at-large. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Jordan McLeod. Our chief content officer is Laurie Hoffman. Our producers are Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark-Gray, Alex Morris, Tucker Ligurski, and Chris Gautier. Our music director is Ryan Holliday. Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera. 
audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, and Andrew Nault. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Adam Heiner, Colin Howarth, Tim Cronin, Kelsey Capitano, Sammy Aputa, Anna Pizzino, Sarah Tartar, Leah Saramedis, Chineme Ozuquena, Alfonso Bravo, Aria Finger, and Saida Sapieva. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode. And please subscribe to our email newsletter. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership. <laughs>